Amen. Wasn't that wonderful? Amen. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Matthew chapter 1, as we are coming to really the end of the Christmas season, we know that every, every Sunday we celebrate the coming of our Lord, the, the redemption that he has given to us. We celebrate his death and resurrection. Uh, really, in that sense, Christmas and Easter are really not that special to us. Every Sunday is Christmas and Easter. Um, we just like Christmas and Easter because uh, we get gifts on Christmas. So, but, uh, but the truth is, is that this is something we celebrate every Sunday. And why is that? Because this is the most momentous time. It was a time when the very choirs of heaven broke through time and history to come and announce the birth of Jesus our Lord. That redemption has come, and as I've said here, the king is here. The king that we have worked through the genealogy and discovered that all throughout Israel's history for centuries and centuries we have been waiting for. Uh, through their life stories, they have told us that they are going to that they are going to bring about the kingdom of God and how we can become a part of that kingdom of God. And now we see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it begins by simply saying that the birth of Jesus Christ took place like this. The origin of Christ, not origin in the sense that uh, he began here, but the word here that is used is, is not the normal word for birth. It's actually the genesis of Jesus Christ. It is the beginning of the gospel itself. It is the beginning of the gospel story that Christ has come and he has brought salvation to his people. And so let's read this text together. And uh, beginning in verse 18, it's a longer passage, so I will read it aloud as you follow along in your copy of the word. And, and just one more time, I would invite you to stand uh, to give reverence to the reading of his word this morning. And now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Hallelujah. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means translated God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
And as we come through this, this time of year, you know, it's so often uh, met with joy and rejoicing, just, just a lot of mixed emotions. Uh, some people, this is a very difficult time of year that brings back a lot of difficult memories. And, and yet the memory that we hold most to, we should hold most to as the church, is the memory of this amazing event that up until all the history of Israel, a history that is so captured in that wonderful hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, this history has all worked up to this point. There used to be a, there used to be a sign in Little Rock that uh, it had a little BC on one side and AD on the other, and it had a little cross in the middle, and the word said, who split time? And I always appreciated that. Of course, they don't even use BC and AD anymore. They, they use CE and BCE, but whatever. It, the fact of the matter is, is that it's still split in two by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the momentous moment in all of history. It is the center point of God's story. It is every story in the Old Testament. Everything works up to this moment. Everything is part of a bigger story of a God who has come to rescue his people, of a king who has come to ransom his slaves, of a, of a wonderful savior who has come to deliver his people from the burden and slavery of their sin. And this is how it happened. This is how it happened. And so I wanna look at this this morning and just go through the story and talk about some of the things we see in this. Once again, Matthew is not giving us the story just to give us bare history, just so we can satisfy our curiosity, but he is giving us this story to teach us to teach us what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to, be, to live in the kingdom of God. And all throughout the gospel of Matthew, we're gonna see that up time and time again, that this is life in the kingdom. This is, this is uh, community in the kingdom. This is all of these things. This is the mission of the kingdom. All of those, those themes we're gonna see throughout the gospel of Matthew. And it all begins right here with the birth of our king. Our king is here and and he has the right, sovereign right, and we have the joy of centering our entire life around him. And so this is what we see. How do we become a part of this kingdom? And we're gonna see why Jesus came. We're gonna see in verse one, uh, excuse me, verse 18. I'm gonna do that a lot, so just ignore that. So in verse 18 in chapter one, it says here that when his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, I want you to see, first of all, that Matthew, as he is painting this story for us, he's gonna paint us through the life of Joseph uh, kind of an illustration of the dilemma that we find ourselves in because Joseph is in a very similar dilemma. You know, most of the time in our Christmas stories and our nativity plays and your nativity set that is on your, uh, on your mantle at, at home, uh, whatever it is, even the one right here, most of that is based on Luke's telling. Because, and, that, and that's appropriate because uh, Luke does tell us about the actual birth of Jesus Christ, whereas Matthew really just kind of mentions it. Uh, Luke is really giving us the, the story from Mary's perspective. Whereas Matthew, on the other hand, he's going to tell us about the birth of Christ from Joseph's perspective. And that is appropriate because uh, Jesus Christ, he gains his legal status to the throne of David through the means of Joseph's lineage. 
He is the son, he is the adopted son of Joseph, which makes him the son of David and gives him the right to rule over the throne of Israel and ultimately the world. And so we see when this happened. Now I want you to look at his dilemma here. It's, and I want to park here for just a few minutes. It says here that when his mother Mary had been betrothed, before they came together, we see Mary's pregnancy. We see Mary's pregnancy. You need to understand betrothal back during this day. It's, it's stronger than engagement. It, it, some of your translations may say when he was engaged to Mary. That, that's really a softening of, of what it is although it does help you kind of understand it. But betrothal is a lot more than that. Uh, It's much different than engagement. It is an actual legal status. It is a legal place that took place. It, It usually lasted for about a year when the husband was preparing a home for his bride to be, preparing a place to live. The dowry sometimes was being paid off, Uh, but it it was as strong as a legal contract. She was still living with her parents at this time, but for all intents and purposes, they are husband and wife. They have simply not come together yet, either living together or any other way. Once the husband was ready, he would come to retrieve her, usually by leading out a parade. He would come to the very gate of her house. He would call her out and she would come out to meet him and they would go back to his home and celebrate. You may remember John chapter 14, verses one through three. Jesus is using this imagery to describe that he's going to prepare a place for us. And and if he is, he will come back to retrieve us to himself. Jesus is using that very imagery of a wedding to come and claim his bride. It's a much stronger commitment than modern engagement. It, it required divorce to dissolve. And it's during this time, during this year, uh, or however long it was, that they were betrothed in, in order to protect her, uh, in order to protect her integrity. She was betrothed to Joseph, and yet at the same time, to protect the truth of the virgin birth, it was before they had come together. It was during this time, during this time of preparation that Mary is found to be with child. We know from Luke 1 that she spent about three months with her cousin Elizabeth. So I imagine this is about three to five months after the fact where she can no longer hide it. And by the time she returned, it's very public. Everyone would have assumed the worst, even Joseph. And I don't think we, you and I can really give them a hard time over that, can we? I mean, wouldn't you assume the same thing? If your daughter came home and said, I am pregnant, it's, I haven't done anything wrong, it's a, it's a virgin conception. I don't think that uh, I would have a, I don't think I'd be very compassionate toward her. So you can imagine how this would be, right? So you can see Joseph's problem here. You can see Joseph's problem. In verse 19, look at how it's worded. It says that he is a just man and he is unwilling to put her to shame. But instead, he decides to divorce her secretly. He is a righteous man. He is a just man. And most think that his not wanting to disgrace her is related to his righteousness, but that is actually not how the word is used anywhere in the Bible. 
In other words, it means to say that he cares about right and wrong. He cares about righteousness. He cares about holiness. He is concerned for the law and what is proper to be done. Joseph, as a righteous man, knows that what had to happen, she had to face the penalty for her supposed sin. There was no getting around it for Joseph. He knew that her supposed sin, had she actually committed adultery, he would know that she deserved the penalty that was coming to her as a righteous man. Joseph is a just man, but he is also compassionate. He is also compassionate. You see, he's unwilling to put her to shame. He doesn't want to publicly disgrace her. In the Old Testament, stoning was required. Both of both parties, actually, if they were available, but if they were not, the, the party that was available was required to be stoned. This was not available because the Romans had taken away the Jews' ability to practice capital punishment, but I dare say that what they did might have actually been worse. We know from the Mishnah that they would publicly humiliate her. Joseph would take her through a public trial where because she is pregnant, the evidence would have been irrefutable. They would have made her drink bitter water, which would have caused her to vomit in front of everyone. And then they would have stripped off her clothes in front of everybody and shamed her to the entire village. And depending on the village, they would also beat her with whips and lashings. And sometimes they would even, sometimes they would even cause a miscarriage. It's absolutely disgraceful how they treated them. And Joseph didn't want this to happen to her. He loved her. Joseph didn't want to see her publicly put to shame. And this was his dilemma because Joseph was a just man. He knows that she must face the penalty of her sin, but because he loves her, his compassion toward her desires mercy. That's exactly the same dilemma we find ourselves in, isn't it? We stand before a holy and righteous God. His righteousness demands a just penalty for sin. We can't, he cannot ignore our sin because to do so would be to deny his holy character. He cannot just simply wipe our sins away. He cannot just simply do away with our sins. He is a righteous and he is a holy God and sin must be punished by a holy God. Habakkuk chapter one, verse 13 says, Habakkuk says, you, O God, who are of purer eyes to even see evil and cannot look at wrong. God is so holy that sin cannot even be in his presence. And to be outside of the presence of God is to face his unmitigated and unadulterated wrath. Sin cannot abide in the presence of God, and as sinners, his holiness demands justice. His holiness demands punishment, and yet God is also compassionate. He is also loving. And look at Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. Look what he says here. He says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? 
You see, the Lord finds himself in the same predicament that Joseph did in that he is a holy God who demands punishment, who demands righteousness, who demands that sin meet its end. And yet at the same time, he is a loving and compassionate God who loves his people and desires to save them, desires to show them mercy. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I was counseling uh, some parents one time who took just a little too much joy in disciplining their children. I said, beloved, if disciplining your child is something you take joy in, there's a problem. There's a huge problem. That is not love. In fact, that borders on abuse. And yet understand that God in his infinite righteousness is not like an, an upset parent, he, his wrath is absolutely and totally justified, and yet his love is absolutely and totally compassionate. And this is a tension that we see all throughout the Old Testament. Look at the law in Exodus chapter 34, whenever he passes by Moses. Look what it says, and, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And look what he goes on to say, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children from the third and fourth generation. Do you see the tension there? How can God both forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet also by no means leave the guilty unpunished? This is a tension we see all throughout the Old Testament. You might ask, why does God have to punish sin? Why does he even have to do it? Why can't he just forgive? Well, well, let me just appeal to your own judgment for a moment. Is that the kind of world you wanna live in? Is that the kind of world you want there to be where there is no justice? A world in which anyone can do anything to anyone they want and there would be no answer for it where no wrongdoing is held accountable? Do you really wanna live in that world? No, of course you don't. Of course you don't. I, uh, I bought a present for Roxanne for Christmas and uh, I had it shipped to the church to avoid her opening it whenever it came to the house. And, and it got here on Monday of last week and, um, and, I, and they delivered it like super early. I was really surprised. And they delivered it here to the church and, and I had been home. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning and, and nothing like this has ever happened here, by the way. But I just knew this was gonna be the one time that porch pirates would come and get it. And I am, I am hurrying as hard as, I, as fast as I can to get here. And on the way here, I'm just imagining all these scenarios that I drive up and I see someone stealing the package and what I'm gonna do and what I'm gonna say. And by the way, in my fantasies, I am a kung fu expert. <laughs> I, I am, everyone is kung fu fighting here and I am saving the day and Roxanne's getting her gift and, and it was great. By the way, nobody touched it. It was fine. And she loved it, by the way. So, but you feel the dilemma, don't you? Isn't that the kind of world we live in where you want justice to be done? Where you want wrongdoing to be punished? You know that. So why ask the question? Why does God have to punish sin? Why ask that question? Because you feel the dilemma, don't you? Do you not feel this dilemma in your own heart? 
We want those who wrong us to be accountable. We want them to feel the full weight of their guilt. But when I am the one who is guilty, or better yet, when it's my kids are the ones who are guilty, what's the first thing I cry out for? Mercy. Mercy. And do we not feel this tension in our own hearts? Do we not know what it is to demand justice and yet at the same time plead for mercy? Is that not the world that we live in? This is what Joseph felt. It's a dilemma that he's faced with. And beloved, this is the tension that we feel all throughout the Old Testament that the Old Testament cannot solve. There is not a law in the world that can solve this dilemma. You will either sacrifice justice or you will sacrifice compassion. But according to the law, you cannot do both perfectly. You just can't. Joseph did the only thing, the only right thing he could do. He Resolved to divorce her, but to do so as discreetly as he could. And yet, praise the Lord, God steps in. And what is impossible with man becomes possible with God. Because we see that we saw our dilemma, but we go on and we see the Lord's declaration in the following verses. Joseph is asleep and an angel comes to him in a room when he had decided to do this and the angel commands him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. You know, again, we tend to minimize Joseph's part in all of this, but, but think about what is it that Joseph would have been afraid of? Why is it that he would have feared why is it that the angel is telling him specifically, do not fear to take Mary as your wife? Why is that? Because being a righteous man, he could not have taken Mary as his wife. To do so would be to tell everyone that he is the offending party. Everyone would understand that he is the father of the child inappropriately if he were to take Mary as his wife. His good name would be slandered, and it's something that would follow him throughout the rest of his life. And by the way, we happen to know that it did follow him the rest of his life. Because if you look in John chapter 8, verse 41, when the Pharisees are having an argument with Jesus, one of the slanders they give him is, we are not born of sexual immorality like you are, is the implication. This is a reputation that followed Joseph for the rest of his life and tied a can to Jesus' life as well. He was concerned about his own appearance of righteousness and yet the angel tells him, put away your self-righteousness. Do not fear for yourself or your own reputation. Why? Because the one who is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. There is no pagan legend here. There is no grotesque details. She is conceived of the Holy Spirit. The one who is born is born of the Holy Spirit. And why is this important? For two reasons. Number one, we see his divine mission here. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph, you don't have to worry about self-righteousness anymore. You don't have to worry about law righteousness anymore because the one who is coming has come to save his people from their sins. For real. 
son of Mary will be called Jesus. By the way, that name is Yehoshua, or sometimes shortened to Yeshua. The name means Yahweh saves. It's a very common name for that time. There are a lot of people who were named Jesus during that time. Just like today in Latin culture, you'll meet people who are named Jesus. It's a very common name. It's actually the name of Joseph. It's the Greek version of Joseph, not Joseph, Joshua. It's actually the Greek version of Joshua. People had this hope that Yahweh will save them and deliver them from the bondage of the Roman Empire. And yet the angel tells Joseph that you will name him Jesus. Why? Because the salvation of Yahweh is here and it is not from delivery of bondage from Rome. It is is the deliverance from all of our bondage to sin. He will save his people from their sin. By the way, this is a direct reference to Psalm 130, which is a wonderful psalm. For lack of time, I won't read the entire psalm. It's only eight verses. But these last two verses are significant. It says, O Israel, wait for Yahweh. For with Yahweh there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. Watch this. For it is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. In the birth of Christ, this long-awaited hope is, uh, the, this long-awaited hope is over. Yahweh in flesh has come, and he will deliver the people from their sins. Everyone else who carried the name Jesus hoped in the one who would come. Jesus carries that name because he is the one who has come. He is the very salvation of Yahweh. We see the full work of Christ here. The hope of salvation is accomplished for his people. And in this one statement, we see the full work of Christ. And how can he accomplish it? How can he do this work? Because we see his divine identity in verses 22 and 23. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call his name. And the Hebrew pronunciation, I saw you guys laughing when I pronounced it earlier. The Hebrew pronunciation, Emmanuel, or Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. We see his divine mission We see his divine identity. It's a very important passage. In fact, this prophecy, I think, is one of the center prophecies of the scripture, so much so that I'm almost tempted next week, instead of continuing on in Matthew, I'm almost tempted next week to go back to Isaiah and look at the entire working out of the prophecy. It is amazing. It's just amazing to see how God is working this out. And by the way, Matthew is not misinterpreting this verse. He is not misusing it. It is a promise of a virgin-born Messiah. And properly, it should not be interpreted any other way. So, I don't know. What do you guys think? Should we, should we talk about that next week? I don't know. We'll see. But in this God with us, we see the full Deity, the full person of Jesus Christ. She will bear a son. That is his full humanity. That Jesus derives his humanity, his very DNA, his very, his very body. All of this comes from Mary, just like any other natural childbirth. 
We see his full humanity, but we also see his full deity, for his name shall be called Emmanuel. Translating means God with us. That in this child, we have the very presence of Yahweh. The most full and complete revelation has come. The word of God incarnate is here. God has stepped into history to change everything. He has come to rescue his people. And in the angel's declaration, we have the full doctrine of Jesus Christ. The answer that the law could never give. The solution to our dilemma in which we are caught. In that tension that we find in the Old Testament that is never solved, is now solved in the birth of this child. What is impossible with man is made possible with God. Paul helps us understand this in Philippians chapter two. I have it in the legacy because I want you to see, I think they capture the full range of this better. It says, although who, Jesus, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God to a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He became one of us, he became obedient for us, and then he endured death on the cross for us. In that great act, now by an amazing transfer, Christ's righteousness is placed on us and our sin is placed on him. And in this, the holy demand of righteousness is satisfied and the wonderful compassion of God's love is given. All in the same act, we see this wonderful, tr uh, this wonderful transference of God's wrath on us in Jesus Christ and God's love for his son given to us and that we are made joint heirs with Christ. We are adopted by the father and he loved us so much. He gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life in that very son. Psalm 85, 10. I love this. That again, we see this tension. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss one another. We have the full righteousness of God that demands holy justice, but we also have the peace of God that comes with his mercy and forgiveness. And these two come together in intimate union. They kiss one another in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that God's eternal wrath towards sin is placed on Christ and his wonderful love, mercy, and compassion is placed on you and me. Isn't that wonderful? That's what we celebrate this time of year. Look at how Paul says it. I don't think you can say it any better than this. It says that all of this was to show his righteousness at the present time, watch this, so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that God will be both just and the justifier, the forgiver, the mercy, mercy giver of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ, righteousness and peace kiss one another in Christ. 
What is there left to do? What is there left to do? What is our response? After hearing this, there's only one thing Joseph could do. He immediately did as the angel commanded. He went and took Mary as his wife. Not only this, in verse 25, he went above and beyond. He kept her a virgin, denying himself until she gave birth to her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. So beloved, reflect on that name for a moment. How Joseph must have thought and reflected on that name endlessly. He had anywhere from six months to think about this name the angel had given him, to reflect on it daily. What must that have been like knowing what Joseph knows? Just imagine what it must have been for six months, how that name must have been music to his ears. He didn't mind the sneers from the village he wasn't concerned about his own reputation anymore. He wasn't concerned about what taking Mary as his wife was going to cost him. He wasn't concerned about how little they understood it. And finally, on that day, eight days after his birth, he presents this child and he names him Yahweh is my salvation. Sneer at me all you want. Damage my reputation all you want. My salvation is with Yahweh. My salvation is with God. There is nothing else to fear. Here is salvation. Here is the kingdom. The name by which every other name under heaven must be saved, the name Jesus Christ is born today. Have you considered Jesus Christ? What is your response? Let me just give you some suggestions from this text. Actually, they're not suggestions, they are commands. What must we do? How do we see them illustrated in this text? Number one, you must humble yourself. You must humble yourself. In verse 20, the angel told Joseph, do not fear. He was feared for his own reputation. He feared for his own self-righteousness being, being, um, being damaged. The angel tells him, do not fear for yourself, Joseph. Put away your self-righteousness. Put away your own law righteousness. Do not fear to obey. Humble yourself. Humble yourself for your salvation is in the work of another on your behalf, not you. You must humble yourself. Number two, you must look on in verse 20. Look what he says. For that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. You must count the cost. This is often left out of gospel presentations, but you must count the cost. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, Joseph, understanding what that's going to mean for you. Understanding what it's going to cost you. Jesus said, anyone who would follow me, they must take up their cross daily and follow me. There is a cost to repentance. Jesus offers, Jesus offers to give you everything 
in exchange for the nothing that we so often grab onto. I had all of this planned the other day. I never told her about this, so this is gonna be news to Hannah, but I had gone to... Uh, I had gone to Casey's early that morning. I got two 20-ounce drinks, and uh, I, she came down, and I knew she was gonna want me to go get her a drink, and so I kind of hid it. And she went into Roxanne's room and was asking for a drink, and I knew Roxanne had a can in there. Roxanne did not share, so she kind of ruined my she kind of ruined my plan. But I was hoping Hannah would come with this can of Dr. Pepper Zero, the nectar of life. And... I was, I was hoping that she would come and I would convince her to give me the can, the 12 ounce can of Dr. Pepper Zero. And when she did, I would present her with the 20 ounce bottle. I would give her more than what she already had. It didn't work that way. Instead, uh, I ended up just giving it to her just because. It was gonna be a great object lesson, by the way. You would have loved it. So, but how often, I remember the story of a, of a father who who his young daughter had a string of, of fake pearls. And she loved, she wore them everywhere she went. And the father one day asked her, began asking her, would you give me the, por- the pearls? I think it was Chuck Swindoll that told this story. Would you give me the pearls? Give me the pearls, give me the pearls. And the young girl was like, oh no, daddy, please, not my pearls, not my precious pearls. And then one day she finally came to him in his study and said, here, daddy, you can have my pearls. And he took them and he put them in his desk and opened a drawer, drawer and out of that drawer, he pulled out the most beautiful strand of genuine pearls and he gave it to his daughter in return. Beloved, what are you holding on to? Count the cost, yes, but understand the cost pales in comparison to what Christ wants to give you. And so count the cost, humble yourself. Number three, look at verse 24, believe, 23, I'm sorry, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that he is our Lord. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And then finally, verse 21, depend upon his work alone. He will save you from your sins. So beloved, if you wanna come into the kingdom of God, you must humble yourself. And yes, you must count the cost. But believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and depend upon his work alone for salvation. And we see that exemplified in the life of Joseph and the birth of our Lord. Have you done that? Have you considered the claims? Have you considered the work of Christ? Have you considered who he is for your own life? If you haven't done that, beloved, I would love to lead you to know how you can know Christ as your savior, how you can have a share in the kingdom, how you can know that your sins are forgiven and finally, after all of this time, finally give up your own self-efforts that have led you to nothing but frustration and come to Christ alone who is powerful to save you. Will you come to Christ today? Our Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that indeed the name Jesus, Yahweh saves, 
is the name by which anyone who would know, who would know salvation must know Jesus. And Father, if there's one here today, I don't care how long they've attended church. I don't care if they've been baptized. I don't care if they've walked an aisle or prayed a prayer. But if there's one here today who's trusting in their own self-righteousness, their own ability to keep a law, their own ability to do whatever, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself today through the truth of your word, that you are the one who must save them from their sin. We stand before you in this holy dilemma, standing before a righteous God who must punish our sins and yet a compassionate God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Lord, will you step into our lives this morning and will you solve the dilemma by saving some poor soul on the verge of going to hell, only one breath away from death? Lord, would you step in this morning as Christ stepped in so many years ago? Oh, Lord, save us and make us yours. Let's stand together. I would ask you to just simply bow your heads and reflect on what has been said this morning. If you are here this morning and perhaps you have not done this, you have never humbled yourself, perhaps you have never trusted in Christ alone, perhaps you are here and you're trusting in some combination of works and faith alone, Will you come to Christ this morning and will you be saved as we play through the first Christmas together? The first Noel may have happened 2,000 years ago, but perhaps your Noel can take place this morning. Your Christmas can take place even now. That Christ would come into your heart and that you would own him as your savior and Lord, and he would own you as his own beloved child. Will you be saved from your sin? Or will you keep trying to do it yourself? Beloved, come to Christ this morning.